Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Winter. Governments across Latin America are urgently trying to find the right balance between protecting jobs and protecting public health. And perhaps nowhere has that debate been as contentious as it is in Brazil. Well, I think I think the president has um, framed it as a sort of a false debate. In the end, the issue really is we need to do this. We need to do these sanitary measures. What do we do to contain the fallout? Well, as we enter April 2020, there are some extremely difficult and perhaps impossible questions facing Latin American governments. How do you get the balance right between social distancing and protecting the economy? How much should governments spend to help people and companies? Is there such a thing as too much? And look, these are not black and white issues for anybody who really knows Latin America and has spent time in places like La Matanza or Diadema or Tepito or San Pedro Sula. You know how precarious life can be. These are places where hunger is real even under the best of circumstances, and even the shortest interruption in people's livelihoods has real consequences. This virus is brutal, but we know recessions can kill people too. And joining us to discuss these difficult issues is Monica de Bole. Monica is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and a professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Well, Monica, uh, first of all, thanks for being here. Well, thank you very much, Brian. It's it's an honor to be here. So, Monica, as we record this, Brazil has seen more than 7,000 confirmed coronavirus cases and 250 deaths. But throughout most of this crisis, President Jair Bolsonaro has downplayed the virus, calling it a little flu and stressing the need to save jobs. What's your response to the president's framing of this so far? Well, I think I think the president has um, framed it as a sort of a false debate, you know, as if you had to choose between the health measures that will hurt the economy and, you know, not imposing those health measures and thereby um, protecting the economy. I think there's a misunderstanding here because the the problem with not implementing the quarantines and the social distancing and all of the measures that we know are necessary right now is that you risk having an epidemic run rampant in the country. You risk the complete collapse of the health system, which then would lead the population to panic. So then you risk social upheaval. And once you're in that situation, you know, from that you jump into political upheaval, institutional upheaval, and ultimately an economic collapse very, very quickly. So in the end, the issue really is we need to do this. We need to do these sanitary measures. What do we do to contain the fallout? That has to be the mindset. And it's been a very hard um, sort of uphill battle to get the government to understand clearly that this is what they're facing. Brazil's an interesting case, though, because on the one hand, I feel like the world has kind of noticed with a degree of horror that that Bolsonaro among major world leaders is the one who's sort of most dismissive of the virus. But not all people realize that actually, in practice, the response has not been that bad because governors and mayors have taken the lead by 
closing down um, public transport and ordering social distancing. I mean, how much do you think the president's words and actions or, or lack thereof have really had an impact on the crisis so far in Brazil? Is it irrelevant or has it actually made a big difference? No, it has made a difference. I mean, if you look at, for example, last Sunday, um, the president was out walking around in the streets of, of Brasilia. And those images went on TV and he made some statements about, you know, how, how important it was for people to go back to work and all of that. So on the one hand, while it's true that a lot of governors and mayors and so on have taken the health restrictions and the health measures very seriously, the problem is that when you have the president sending a completely different signal to the population, especially to the vulnerable population that feels as if, you know, if they're not getting any help from the government, they need to go out and work. Um, the result that you get is that effectively a lot of people have not been abiding by um, the quarantines and the sanitary measures that were imposed by the governors. Um, and we can't forget that in many of these cities, you know, the agglomeration of people is very high. There's, there's a lot of population density. You have the favelas where people live on top of each other. And so, you know, if you risk um, an epidemic going out of control, especially in these highly populated areas because of the actions taken by the president, you kind of have a catastrophe building on your hands. And that's the scenario that frightens a lot of people, including myself. I always tell people that, that in countries where, you know, the rule of law is, is not as strong, it, it's actually the words that come from the president that matter more than the policies themselves. I mean, we, we arguably saw that with the, the crisis in the Amazon last year, and, and we're seeing it now again with, with COVID-19. I mean, leadership matters uh, so much because of the tone that gets set at the top. Absolutely. Talk to us, if you can, about where we are right now. Uh, what has the government in Brazil done so far in response to coronavirus on the economic front in particular? I mean, what, what has the response been? How are they, that balance that I described, how are they trying to pull that off so far? So the central bank has actually been very much in the front lines of this. So they, um, the central bank of Brazil has done a number of policies that are very similar to ones that other central banks around the world have done. So they've created emergency liquidity lines for the banking system. They've also gone above and beyond and created these emergency liquidity lines for companies. So this is the first time that the Brazilian central bank actually does something like this. They've lowered interest rates and, you know, and they're still very active in keeping an eye on the financial situation to ensure that banks and firms are, are properly um, liquid and have access to cash when they need it. So their actions have actually been um, so far very good. They've been very responsive. Not so um, at the level of the Ministry of the Economy, which is where um, all of the fiscal policy should have been articulated already. And that includes, of course, the response um, on the health front. So, you know, the, Brazil has a public health system. Um, it's, it has its, you know, shortcomings, obviously, but it is, uh, by and large, a pretty good health system. But it does need a lot of resources to face this epidemic. And the government has been lagging in terms of um, just passing on the resources to, 
to the public health system. They have the ability to do it because they declared um, state of calamity or state of emergency a couple of weeks ago. And that's important because um, the fiscal legislation in Brazil, the fiscal responsibility law and the, the spending ceiling that are that is currently in place. That was passed a couple of years ago under the Michelle Temer government and was hailed as a big deal at the time because it, it put a cap on real government spending. Uh, exactly. But, but that's being cast aside somewhat right now, right? Well, what happens is that both of those instruments, so the fiscal responsibility law and the um, the spending cap, they allow for exceptional spending when there's a state of emergency. So basically, the government is not restricted. It can spend as much as it wants um, because there's no binding fiscal rule in place right now. And yet they've been very slow to act. So as I was saying on the health front, they've re- really done very little. On all other fronts, they're still at a stage where they're trying to formulate the measures. And one of the things that has left me in particular very anxious is their response to the vulnerable population, which in Brazil, as you know, Brian, is very large. It's a very large chunk of the population. And by vulnerable, I mean, you know, all of those people who work in the informal labor market or have very precarious jobs or even don't have jobs and have some other source of income, or you know, are elderly and poor or very low income. If we take into account all of the people that fall into one of these categories, we're talking about you know at least 50% of the population, or about 100 million people. And one of the things that you know the government um, should have done first was actually to provide um, these people with some kind of some kind of basic income. So what's the holdup then? I mean, I, I am sure that policymakers understand the urgency because they, <laughs> at least in the finance ministry, people are reading about what's happening elsewhere around the world. I'm not sure about in every other part of the government structure, let's say, but I mean, they're, these are people who are well-informed. I know some of them personally, so do you. Um, is it that this is a massively complex endeavor and it involves you know, massive amounts of money and it just inevitably is going to take a little bit of time? Or do you see something else at work? There's a lot of lack of coordination and lack of knowledge of how to implement this thing logistically, because the the law that actually creates this emergency basic income for precisely a, a share of this population that I was speaking of, so a share of the 100 million, that's already law. So the Congress passed it last week uh, and the Senate passed it last Monday and um, the legislation is already in effect. The problem that the, the government's having is twofold. On the one hand, they're trying to figure out who who is it that they actually give the money to. Now, that part shouldn't really be that hard to figure out because Brazil has this registry where everybody who has ever received or, or or still receives some kind of social program is on there. You know, you can reach these people very, very easily. I'd say there are 77 million people on that registry. About 60 some something million of them are currently eligible to receive the benefit. Um, and the benefit amounts to about $120 a month. Um, for three months initially with the possibility of being extended. 
the so one issue that the government is having and it beats me why they're having this this problem is getting the payment out to these people they already know who these people are and they can get the payment out to them well but this raises the question though i mean look this is a a right wing government and it was also true that that they were reducing the roles of Bolsa Familia, the the vaunted cash transfer program prior to this crisis. Um, Do you think ideology is getting in the way here, or is it just simply that this is hard? This isn't really politics, it's, it's more logistics? I think it's a combination of the two. So I think in part, it is politics. Um, Bolsonaro himself has been very reluctant to embrace this program as it was created. And so there's there's that bottleneck. Um, the logistical bottleneck, I'd say, it exists because there are a lot of people who are eligible who are not on this unified registry. So the government does need to create some form of getting these people registered so that they can receive the benefit. And that is not easy. That That is hard. However, you know, there are people who can start receiving the benefit right now because we already know who they are given that they are on the, on the registry. So there are issues there that I simply can't understand. And then there's another issue, which is much more technical and complicated, but it has to do with, you know, how do you actually finance that payment? Now, the economy minister, Paulo Guedes, was trying to figure out exactly where how he was going to fund this. It's, it's not that big um, in terms of percentage points of GDP. It amounts to something close to 4% percentage points of GDP. But the issue is, you know, where do you get the resources from? And that's that's a hard one, correct me if I'm wrong, for Brazil, because this is a country that, unlike most of the world, is really still recovering from its worst recession and economic crisis in history in 2015 and 2016, and is still under pressure on the fiscal front. I mean, how how much of an issue is that right now? Should it be an issue? Well, it should not be an issue, actually, because this is a critical juncture, right? And, and it's a complete change in scenario. So where we were, let's say, three months ago um, and where we are now, it's just the world turned upside down. And it's the same when it comes to Brazil. Um, one of the issues that you know people had been concerned about, but I think everybody now has come to the same view, which is you know you need to spend as much as you need when you're in, in a in a crisis situation such as this one, which is unprecedented, was oh Brazil has a lot of fiscal fragilities and you know creating more fiscal fragilities is perhaps not warranted. But that that mindset has now completely shifted because people realize the emergency and the urgency of the situation. And for this program specifically, we're really only talking about four percentage points of GDP. So that would be the increase in the debt if you do it all by issuing new sovereign debt. And that's not a big deal at all. I mean, in terms of you know where it takes you and where it leaves the country. But it is a big deal for the people who receive it, right? Because these are people who have no other source of income and Presumably, some of them already are having difficulty finding, you know, ways to buy food. So, Monica, you've talked about what is being done so far in terms of the government response. What do you think should be done? I mean, and and what do you think is realistic? Basically, there are a lot of things that should be done that the government is already doing, but it's doing in very timid amounts. So, for example, health spending. 
The government has talked about numbers which fall way short of what is actually needed. And so I think they can be way bolder than they have been um, and sort of increase those numbers tenfold in order to address the needs of the health systems. A second set of issues has to do with, you know, the the quick implementation of this emergency basic income that I talked about and widening it because it needs to really address everybody who falls into the vulnerable population category. And at the moment, it's only defined for a share of that population. It also needs to be for a longer time period. It can't be for just three months. So the, the government has moved in the right direction on that one, but it needs to do more. Um, on employment, formal workers, those who are still employed, I think there are still a lot of measures that the government needs to take to ensure, one, that you know there isn't a massive unemployment problem in Brazil, um, and just to remind ourselves, the unemployment rate in Brazil was already high. It was already bad. It was like 12%. Exactly. So it was already already very high going into this. And the danger is that, you know, without measures to um, protect workers and companies, that you might even, you might have, you know, just horrible unemployment numbers. And I mean, they're, they're talking about 30% as a possibility here in the United States. Yeah. I mean, as an economist, What's a worst case projection in Brazil? I think a worst case projection in Brazil is something around 20%. And that would be absolutely devastating. Um, so we need to try to avoid that. And there are ways to do it. One of the other things that the Congress has been working on are draft bills that would, A, provide financial assistance to companies, but would tie that financial assistance to maintaining employment levels and also part of that assistance would go towards wage payment. So very similar to what other countries such as the UK and others in Europe have done to basically um, limit the additional unemployment that we could have out of this crisis while at the same time giving companies a lifeline. Let me ask you a question that will sound like a softball, but is actually meant seriously. You know, you're, you're sketching out these really big, dramatic terms. Is there any risk to going too big? I mean, is there inflation or ratings downgrades or fiscal problems that could come later that you see that, that, that could be posed by, by being too aggressive in the response? Well, the way I see this, because this is such an unprecedented crisis, the risk that exists is the risk of going too low. So it's the risk of not doing enough. No, I and I, and I see that. But but is, is there risk on the other side too? There is on the way out, right? I mean, at the moment, there isn't because everybody's going to look the same. Every country that takes the, the measures to protect the, their economies are going to blow up their debt to GDP ratios and they're going to blow up their fiscal deficit. Um, the bigger problem is in coming out of this, you know, how do you send the signal that, okay, we've done all this, we've contained the situation, we are now going to go back and try to, you know, put the country back on a sound fiscal path. Um, I think that's the challenge that the government is going to face. It has a little bit of room for maneuver because there are things that it can use to reduce the debt. So one of those things is Brazil has a lot of international reserves. And going by um, the measures that the IMF uses, 
you know, there, there's about 140 or so billion dollars that Brazil has of so-called excess reserves. So above and beyond what the country really needs. Um, that's a resource that can be used to, to reduce debt. But what you're, but what you're basically saying is let's worry about all that stuff later, guys. Exactly. So how likely do you think it is that this government will move forward with some of those aggressive responses? I mean, we've seen all over the world how this tends to happen kind of progressively. I think it will inevitably happen because you have here you have two moving parts which are really important. So you have the executive branch on the one hand, which is lagging and which you know isn't implementing things as fast as we want and isn't doing things as aggressively as we want. And then the other important moving part is Congress, which is trying to push the executive to do a lot of these things and in fact is taking the initiative upon itself. So the emergency basic income being the prime example. It was Congress that pushed it. It wasn't the executive branch. Um, these other measures to protect employment and to protect salaries, wages, and to protect you know companies, a lot of this stuff is also being worked out within Congress. I mean, in, at the end of the day, you know, Congress can't do everything alone and the executive can't do everything alone. So at some point, these two parts are going to have to come together because implementation of a lot of these things requires the executive branch. Well, and so much of the focus internationally is always inevitably on whoever is leading the country, the head of the state, in this case, Bolsonaro. But as you point out, especially in a system that, uh, you know, like Brazil's where Congress is pretty powerful, they're a huge part of the equation as well. I mean, what do you see as the appetite and willingness to move on this stimulus and, and efforts to help real people and companies as well? I mean, how, how pliant are they right now? So Congress is actually very pliant and it's been amazing to see such a, a, a fragmented legislature, which is the hallmark of a lot of Latin American countries, but Brazil specifically, come together and work together. You know, so they're, they're leaders of the parties that make up the opposition that are working very closely with so-called allies of the government and they're not so much allies anymore. But anyway, all of them are coming together and trying to draft, you know, the best possible measures to get things moving. So Congress has really been a formidable force in Brazil in, in pushing through, you know, the, the, the urgency. When we think about the economic consequences of this, and I, I, I've looked at the, the forecast from the investment banks for 2020 for Brazil, and JP Morgan is at minus 3.3, Moody's is at minus 1.6, Citi is at minus 1.7, Goldman at minus 3.4. What's your sort of back of the envelope forecast for where this is headed for Brazil? So I think we're headed to a GDP contraction of five or six percent. Wow! Depending on the the you know the ability of the government to get its act together and move fast. Since I don't think they're going to move very fast, um, I do think that the economy will be very hard hit. So you're much more bearish than really all the big investment banks. Why? I've always been more bearish than all the big investment banks, to be frank. So <laughs> that's, pay, that's paid off over the last couple of years, I'll bet. It has. And, um, and you know, early this year, before even the epidemic hit, 
a lot of these investment banks had were projecting, you know, relatively optimistic growth rates for Brazil in 2020. And I was still at 1% emulating what's been happening in the past few years. So it's been easier for me to move into this kind of scenario where it's very clear for me, at least, that the recession will be a deep one than it has for other institutions that were much more optimistic early on. Where do you see the biggest damage? I mean, looking within kind of the subsectors of the economy, where does that destruction play out in the most severe fashion? I think it's going to be widespread, Brian. I think it affects everybody because this is a this is literally, this is what a sudden stop means. Everything suddenly stops working. So all sectors will be hit. I mean, obviously, we already know that the sectors that depend the most on people and that are very heavily affected by the quarantine measures get hit first. So, you know, airlines, hotels, bars, restaurants. But ultimately, you know, it basically captures the entire economy. Finally, Monica, you know, I've been on a thousand Brazil related panels over the years, and I know that you have too. And one of the things I love about them is there's always this tendency at the end to sort of conclude on an optimistic note. I guess people all over the world do that, but it seems especially uh, present when, when you're talking about Brazil. And look, I mean, no matter how things go, it, it's clear that this is a dire time and, and we're going to lose a lot of lives. But do you see any scenario under which maybe it's it's not that bad? Well, yeah, I mean, this is a scenario of really great uncertainty, right? So we could have, you know, a situation that really isn't as bad as I've described and that where the epidemic is not as catastrophic as it's painting itself out to be um, in Brazil at the moment. But I would highlight one other thing, Brian. I'd say that for me, the, the optimistic note that comes out of all of this is that there has been a consensus. It was built within Congress, but it doesn't matter. There is a consensus that having stronger safety nets and social protection is crucial and it actually protects the economy from these sorts of shocks. So I think that, you know, for me, optimistically, the debate on economic policy in Brazil is going to shift from being too fiscally oriented, not that the fiscal Part isn't important, of course it is, but from being way too fiscally oriented to being also very focused on social protection and social safety nets. And I think that will be a really good thing. Well, I appreciate your wisdom already, and I, I hope you're right about some of these more positive consequences. Th thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure as always. Thanks for listening to the America's Quarterly podcast. You can read more about the coronavirus at americasquarterly.org. Finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Katie Hopkins. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas. 